lot of times what they're doing is this, again, to go back to the Horkheimer piece, or to think about why people are snitches, is it seems immediately advantageous to do so, but you're often chipping away at the core of what you want. You aren't, mm -hmm. you aren't making the real, you know, this is not the real movement to which reality must adjust. This is us adjusting a movement to the reality as it is, which is kind of the opposite of what we initially said communism was going to be. Sublation Media viewers, guess what? Pop the left is back. See Derek Barn has returned to the channel. Um, today we are going to talk about Horkheimer's book, The Eclipse of Reason. Um, what was the chapter's title that, that we picked? The Death of the Individual? Yeah, The Rise and Fall of the Individual or something like that. Right, The Rise and Fall of the Individual. And um, this has been uh, a book that I retur returned to. I think I returned to it. I don't know if it was the first time I read it, but... Uh, over the last year, as some revelations have come out about the, the in, increasing power of the security state, um, and as I watched the reaction from the nominal left, uh, I returned to Horkheimer's, or, or found Horkheimer's Eclipse of Reason again. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a piece that I think that you could read, and it would be pretty easy to understand or seemingly too easy to understand maybe um because there's some things that to take it up um fully should leave you troubled or with with problems um primarily that uh the the uh bourgeois individual um is a contradictory concept contradictory social form and it's also i think according to horkheimer something to try to hold on to um even as it even as it self-destructs even as it it naturally kind of comes apart um uh under the strain of its own contradictions contradictions arising from both capitalist society and perhaps from the very uh notion of the individual itself um it's not that dissimilar to i i feel like horkheimer's approach to the individual here is not that dissimilar to uh christopher lash's approach to the family in mm. haven in a heartless world where um it is um something that seems necessary that has clear positive social value but which also is sort of a doomed category and is a category that by its very nature at least under in under the conditions of modernity is bound to start falling apart to save the individual is to doom yourself to irrationality to condemn the individual is to do the same <laughs> yeah I mean that's I, in some ways that is uh, all right. Well, and, I mean, and we've we've covered Horkheimer now. Thank you very much, Derek. <laughs> I mean, um, I mean, 
it's Let's interesting. Let's pass out the uh, poison uh, Kool Aid to everyone. <laughs> and wrap it up. Well, this leads to the kind of cul-de-sac that you get into Horkheimer, and it's interesting because I've been reading late uh, Lukash um, and his Destruction of Reason book, which has been recently reprinted by Verso, so it's hot right now. Um, I read it a long time ago uh, and didn't really understand it. And reading it again, I don't agree with all of it, but I do see that. Um, Horkheimer and Lukash are actually reacting to um, similar problems of uh, the idea of like individual consciousness formation and a socialist totality. The difference that you have is that Lukash absolutely must hold on to the idea of proletarian subjectivity. Um, and that being manifested in some kind of political operation, even though he thinks that is ultimately uh, going into crisis by the 60s and 70s. Um, whereas, you know, this period, I guess this is right after the war when this is written. And I think it would have been published in 1949. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, this significantly predates the eclipse of reason, but significantly postdates uh, history and class consciousness. Uh, oh, excuse me, The Destruction of Reason. See, they have very similar names, yeah. too. It's, the, the Eclipse it's, of Reason is 1947, according to Google. And right. um, and you said it was 1969 for... Uh, no, uh, I think those essays, The Destruction of Reason, is actually post... Uh, like, those are written over a very long period of time. So, okay. um, The Destruction of Reason... 1954. Uh, 1954 is when it first comes out. So, yeah, this oh. is actually... Same period, no, you know. Okay. Yeah, it's in roughly the same period. Um, although, you know, they Lukash and the Frankfurt School have more or less soured on each other by this point, too. So it's, it's kind of uh, important. What was the um, the point of disagreement? What was this? What caused that split? Some of it has to do with how close you felt they felt like they could be to the Soviet Union. I mean, uh, so basically. Um, the Frankfurt School was almost purely critical. The, you know, Lukash was kind of split the baby in a lot of ways. Remain a good um, Marxist-Leninist uh, in Hungary. Um, but also uh, stay true to his, like, critical, hum uh, you know, humanistic, small M, no hyphen, Marxist roots. Um, and thus the shift to a kind of focus on methodology, focus on individual subject consciousness, and then focus on reason and trying to argue that various kinds, I mean, this rereading this and reading this at the same time as I was uh, rereading Destruction of Reason was actually illustrative because they're both Lukash and, or, um, and Horkheimer. And when you pair this with the dialectic of enlightenment, Horkheimer and Adorno, uh, which I, I kind of think these three books are in somewhat in uh, dialogue with each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, that Lukash is trying to save something like a, a communist rationality um, and distinguish it from a bourgeois rationality, right? And he's going after Nietzsche, he's going after Wittgenstein, he's going after all sorts of people, um, justly and unjustly, in my opinion, but I'm not going to go into all those. Whereas mm -hmm. Horkheimer and Adorno, are going after like formalization and positivism as such. So their, their targets actually much bigger. And 
they're trying to explain this in the kind of modes of totality analysis that you would have done with Lukash, that he kind of pioneered in history and class consciousness. But they're doing it in a, I think, a much more totalizing way, because one of the things that they have more or less posited, and Horkheimer, and specifically in this book, just says it outright, um, in this chapter even, um, is that proletarian consciousness is just as distorted as bourgeois consciousness. There's no way around that. Mm-hmm. That uh, The contradictory position that Beaufort in and the change in the nature of, of the factory. And I do want to point out that like one of the problems with this book, and actually similar to the problems with Lash, is that it in some ways seems to be declaring the end of this mode of production. And in another way, it's like Fordism is what it's critiquing. And it's taking Fordism as like the final instantiation of how far this you know capitalist project can really go before it collapses mm-hmm. on itself. And we all know that there's at least two more stages. So it, it's in some ways it seems at least one. I don't know yeah. if we really know if there's two. Right. I, I mean, <laughs> we want to pretend that there's a second one after neoliberalism, <clears throat> but I'm Everybody not so sure we the it. last one. Neoliberalism has changed so significantly between 1992 and 2000 and 2022, particularly after the pivot in 2008, that you're barely talking about the same thing. And the reasons for that are complicated, but I, I want to point well, out. I think we're outside of neoliberalism. I'm just not sure we have like, I'm just not sure. I mean, I'm being darkly pessimistic here to say mm-hmm. it's not a, a new form. Um I'm just not sure if what we're in now is something other than crisis. If it is a way like Fordism was or neoliberalism was of, of truly kicking the can down the road and managing the crisis or not, uh, that kind of seems to me to remain to be seen. Um, but well, in the dialectic between opportunism and, and sectarianism, and in the dialectic between economism and political determinism. In the middle of that is the people who think crisis is going to be the magical fix that gets them out of these dilemmas. So far, which I used to kind of be, you know, I, right. I think that was that that, that described my position for a while. Um, I do not believe that. I do not believe that. Yeah, well, me neither. And um, uh, and I also used to be a person who thought that like crisis would settle it, even though I was like, oh, we're always predicting crisis prematurely or the crisis comes and then it resolves itself in some new way. There's some new countervailing tendency that always seems to be on the horizon. So wh- what's interesting about this, so to put this back in Horkheimer's, is that I'm just doing a very slight shady critique of Horkheimer by, by saying that like, well... He seems to think that all we have left is resistance because of the the total like the the totality of Fordist capitalist culture. He doesn't call it Fordist; he calls it industrial society. But that's that's what he means. That's what we would call it now. Um, he you know he talks about the end of the entrepreneurial bourgeois individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way, he actually sounds a little bit like Werner Sombart. Um, so unlike Werner Sombart, though, he doesn't have the delusions about how, you know, amazing the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial individual actually was. Um, no, no, he's not. He's not celebrating that as the ultimate horizons or even making any 
kind of apologetics for it, particularly. He's just noting that what, from a, you know, Platypus perspective, which I am not Platypus, but have been certainly been steeped in it, he's noted, noticing the regression would be one right. way of putting it, or the falling below the level of, of what had been in the past. But not that it is um, the entrepreneurial, doesn't have contradictions, or even isn't a brutal uh, form of reason. You know, self-interested, antisocial, kind of brutal, but nonetheless, it is the a problem, form of reason. Go ahead. The problem that you have with this notion of teleology, though, is it's regression from moment fucking one. Like the first regression is Louis is Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. Like it's like okay, as soon as we have um, a liberal revolution, we have a regression, which indicates to me. Um, Well, it's a regression from something that maybe Adorno would call a non-identity. Okay. Now, and we have to define that because one of the things that's fun about, you know, identity and Adorno is that it means something. It both does mean the way we use identity today and also means something way more than that. And I think right. Um, what what I think is interesting here is it's very hard for me to like take my tweezers, you know, like you do with Marx and Engels. Sometimes you try to tweeze them apart and it doesn't like you can't really. Mm -hmm. And with Horkheimer yeah. and Adorno, I have a similar problem because I keep on I, I when I was reading this, I kept on reading negative dialectics into it. And I'm like, is that mm -hmm. fair to do? Like, because is this is uh, this problem of the collapse of the individual in the individual's contradictory position, like why, like, I mean, there's some things in this essay that we have to point out, people would read as problematic today, his discussion of like, um, primitive peoples as having a less developed sense of self, not because mm -hmm. they're stupid or lazy, although they'll always be called that, but because there's just less reason for them to cultivate it. They're more dependent on others. Uh, bourgeois sociology, by the way, it, and bourgeois social psychology actually kind of agrees with Horkheimer on this, um, that like, if you go up and down the poverty scale, for example, like the people who are more impoverished tend to be uh, more dependent on others, some more value relationships over self because it's a form of self-preservation. I mean, Horkheimer is not like stating it in a particularly sociologically sophisticated way, mm -hmm. um, but he he's not wrong. and. He's also right that there are tensions in the upper end of the echelon because of competition, which also starts to crash. No, he, yeah, no, know? um, yeah, I have some notes here. So, but before we get, well, okay, um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 uh, let's see, what I'll just, I having written them down, I don't even have to look at them. Um, both the bourgeois elite subject and the impoverished uh, uh, subject that is kind of below the bourgeois, which he compares, you know, who, which is described, I think, right after he describes like more primitive forms of society or pre-modern forms of society. Both of them are uh, conditioned in ways to uh, block off reason and the, the the properly bourgeois subject, um, uh, you know, uh, is pushed to. I mean, in order to develop individuality, in order to be 
uh, a reasonable subject who relies upon himself to understand and navigate the world mm-hmm. in this kind of, you know, what is enlightenment Kantian kind of way. Um, you know, the, 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 to get beyond childhood and to take self-responsibility for, not a, for your own conditions and for the conditions of the world, you have to accrue social power. And that is what the bourgeois subject, the elite subject, has been able on some level or another to do. But because of the power in society is primarily uh, power over things, and I would say commodities, the the uh, the, the world of things that the bourgeois subject takes up um, turns around on him and conditions him uh, and directs him. So the, 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 by striving after power, the bourgeois subject lose a, loses autonomy and loses certain forms of reasons, is conditioned by power. And, and then you could go back into the kind of a little earlier in the text and think about how the, the critique of technocracy uh, applies as well. So the old entrepreneur, entrepreneurial uh, subject um, was conditioned by a questing after profits and and uh, exchange value and and it, it kind of only economic forms of reason. Uh, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, because the entrepreneur was self uh, made or you know was had to be self reliant, was in competition with others, um, and was self responsible. Uh, at at least his or her horizon would be beyond the immediate. Whereas in a technocratic society, um, you know, the the conditions of competition and self-reliance have fallen away. And so the the reason um, fades away as well and becomes more about uh, satisfying the immediate needs of power. Uh, you know, being deemed to be in service of a, a fairly centralized authoritarian power, which is a technocratic state. So uh, that's that's why the technocracy uh, reduces the individual's subjectivity. You know, is, is a puts the individual at risk. Well, um, you're right, and I think we should like maybe. You know, people will say that, oh, you know, the problem with Horkheimer donors are our dialectics. But I've been going back and rereading my mid to late Marx, right? And uh, but they'll say the problem is they're what kind of dialectics? All dialectics, or? just all dialectics, no materialism, right? And hmm. that's the common accusation. But um, that's a materialist. That is a, a historical and materialist accounting in a, in a sense, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah, it is. I mean, what what? Let me finish what I was about to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, right. um, I would say that if you read, and I'm and specifically here, I'm picking from middle and late Marx, so you can't do the whole oh, early Marx is Hegelian. And no, mm-hmm. if you read middle and late Marx, there is concern, for example, with moving away from uh, the state as the provider of direct services or direct consumption, and the reason why is that it establishes a relationship of dependency which erodes both the collective proletariat and the individual consciousness. So what Marx and Engels always push for is stuff like 
Louis Blanc's workhouses in France. He's got, you know, Marx has his critiques of Blanc, but ultimately he thinks like that that's because it creates a job guarantee, creates a means of worker subsistence, even though he knows that if we promise full employment under capital, that that's a lie, we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But that that is where the power of the proletariat really lies in being able to um, actually alter the, the world. Whereas if you make them dependent on the state, they become easily bought out by different factions of elite powers. This is a whole discussion about the lumpen. But if you actually take it to its logical conclusion, it applies to an impoverished proletariat, too. The mm-hmm. reason why that matters and why I'm bringing it up as a defense of Horkheimer here is his discussion of the distortion of proletarian consciousness and bourgeois consciousness in industrial society or what we would call Fordism is directly tied to this because from their perspective this has developed points of dependency which makes everyone both in a double bind and even a relatively conservative thinker like Michael Lane can see this you're in a double bind because on one hand you're a state dependent and that's dependent on the powers of bureaucrats who are maybe maybe dependent on capital but also increasingly as we see in the current capitalist scenario and we maybe we can use this to kind of draw out how this applies today Mm -hmm. uh, we see that like what Robert Brenner calls political capitalism as a side note I hate this moniker because you know, or as I like to call it, Keynesianism that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what you have is basically the increased need for the state to pick winners and losers because they're going to inject liquidity into a market and that's going to float the ability of a business to establish itself enough to be profitable. Because the idea of growing from petite bourgeois origins, the entrepreneurial origins, is maybe something we'll sell to people. But if you look at what actually happens with all these big new businesses, they're all dependent on some way on government contracts or government protections, depending on how you go about it. Mm-hmm. So that makes a direct dependency. Now, the funny thing is the state is also dependent on this cycle it still technically has to for reasons of if nothing else other than accounting um and the ability to control and maintain production for the military and other things that it needs for its own apparatus um has to be engaged in this in a kind of circular way so in 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 one way this double dependency also means that no side of this can actually act completely independently of the wills of the other, which means that there is a kind of compulsion of the system itself. That's how this emerges as a system that feeds back on itself like this. Mm-hmm. Horkheimer is seeing the beginnings of this in you know, what people started to see, like when Bukharin wrote his book on imperialism and he started talking about monopoly capital, not the way that... Um, Sweezy and Baron did it in the 50s, but in a way that he just saw that the state was more and more involved mm-hmm. in the maintaining of these systems. This also led to stuff like managerial theory, etc., by James Burnham. Uh, PMC theories really descended to that. But uh, if you want to pick up the Frankfurt School version of that, you can look at the administrative state theory or administrative. Uh, mm-hmm. But what you have here is just is just the these developments of dependencies and i think if you want to look at where someone's kind of picking up on this and i don't know i haven't read the book far enough to know if he's actually picking up on this from the frankfurt school so Mm. 
but like someone like Soren Mao's mute compulsion is talking about this. These these forces of competition and these forces of dependency to kind of ameliorate the effects of said competition are making it to where there really aren't free actors in the same way anymore, even at the level of states. Like, so we talk about this increasing administrative security state, but, you know, as we've talked about this off air, I told you that I think, well, the reason why this is happening is actually imperial hegemony is becoming more and more fragile for anybody. And so increased internal control becomes more important for these states. And so I think we see this emerge throughout the system. And and so I want to you know, I yeah, no, I, I agree. Effect, it's not but... just in the United States by any means. But I want to walk mm-hmm. through what you just said a little bit more slowly because I <clears throat> I don't disagree necessarily, but there's a problem there <clears throat> that I think is a real problem. It's not like a problem in your thinking. It's like mm-hmm. a problem. There's a problem there. And um, so the, the, the question becomes of, about where the competition is located in this totality. Mm-hmm. And on and how is it um and how is it enacted how it does it appear um because you know the the, the standard marxist way if you read volume one and, and that's all you've read is to think okay well it's a competition based on the speed of production and the deployment of labor power and the the uh, producers that deploy labor the most efficiently will for a short time uh, i'll compete the other producers and and really you put labor time at the very center of of the system and competition um is an incredibly important uh concept in that you know system based uh around uh, the labor value you know mm-hmm. the, um and if you but once you complicate it and you start talking about financialization and then you bring in the the power of the state. You throw in fiat money and the, and military expenditures and violence. Um, uh, uh, then, and also you give the state the power through financialization um, or fiat money, which is the same thing, to start picking winners and losers. Um, there, there, there becomes a distortion in the system that become. I think it's very difficult to pick apart. Like where, how competitive is, how efficiently is labor being utilized? Just on the terms of producing value at, at this at this point, um, how do you separate out uh, what is actually fictitious capital that's ballooning as debt from, you know, profit profits earned through production? And you know you start to and then if you and if you start down that road trying to do that, um, there you might become that that can lead to a conservative turn in and of itself because you might become a kind of an apologist for productive capital. Uh, there's all sorts of tropes that attach to the problem of financialization that you want to avoid, but nonetheless the difficulty arises uh, when the crisis within capitalism shifts from the crisis, a purely economic crisis that you can track in terms of profitability and, and becomes a, a international political crisis. So uh, when you were talking about competition, um, 
uh, and how it still it acts back on the state, it it seems to me it's important to try to figure out exactly how that's happening. Like where where competition between big uh, international corporations and technology companies, competition between nations, um, competition the, between departments within the state. You know, go. Ahead, uh, I'll let you. All of the above, actually. Um, So this is something that makes it so hard to talk about when we talk about totality and then move from talking about like nested structures, for example, the way that say like a structural Marxist might talk about this or an Altisarian Mm. might talk about this or even like an analytical Marxist. We go back to this sort of critical Marxist uh, apparatus. um, And what you see is a totality means that there's competition both within the state itself between agencies. All right. Because mm-hmm. there's resources to be captured. And I don't just mean money. I mean, like the resources of people, attention, time, material, uh, material goods. Being well, really... Could be Taiwanese chip manufacturers. Right. Exactly. Compete for. Yeah. Then there's competition between states for the access to markets. Now, it is one mistake that a lot of people make now in geopolitical analysis is to assume that the state is the that these states are like discrete total economies that are just competing against each other. But they're not. They're also interweaved with each other. Right. So, for example, decoupling right now has led to a, what something like an 18 percent unemployment um, amongst chinese youth that is not being ameliorated and cannot seemingly be ameliorated by uh internal chinese demand for example that's and people who get mad at me for pointing that out i'm actually just quoting prc stats mm-hmm. so what what are they trying to do what well, they have two options they continue to they can try to continue to leverage more investment into additional production but the production is not actually productive meaning that it's not actually generating surplus are you it doesn't is neither generating use values or um uh abstract value on the on the balance sheet right now which is why there's all this stuff in the chinese housing market exploding um now, when you say it's not producing use values, it means no one's buying. The, no one's using product? it. You, buying yeah. it doesn't matter for use values. No one's using this infrastructure they're investing in because they've made too much of it. All right. So mm-hmm. it's literally an overproduction problem. And I mean, people are buying houses. You assume that, well, it could be, what do you got? You got a com- couple of oligarchs who have bought a whole bunch of houses and then they're watching their property devalue. Is that what we're talking about? No, I mean, they're to- literally building like infrastructure to cities that aren't populated. Like, Right. Like, like, so it's not just that the kind of way that we see here. So, for example, we have tons of housing bought here that is mm-hmm. just being sat on as investments or turned into rental properties. But a lot of it's just being sat on as investments. That's part of why housing values stay high. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, you know, we have more housing. We actually do have more housing stock than we need. It's not just a matter of building more. Um, mm-hmm. Now, but in, that, in China, they're building whole little towns and communities that where no one lives and the state owns it yeah and they were well the state owns the corporations that are doing it and what they were doing anyway it was this this has led to instability in the chinese housing market um this is not to say they were being irrational i think they thought that there would be enough growth that they could support this no that's a and they were also betting on offshoring a lot of this excess production to other places through the Belt and Road Initiative, which would also build an alternative trade route to 
the Western trade route, which is a major problem for them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now I, I want to show how this works in the entire system. And we can talk about this in the United States because before people think I'm picking on China, we're worse, but mm -hmm. we're, uh, because, but we're not doing this. Um, so the reason why they were willing to overinvest like that though, is because they were afraid that if they turned a lot of Chinese people into dependence of the state by directly injecting cash and stimulating internal uh, demand that way, that they would be creating, quote, lazy Western consumers. And I used to think this was like some weird conservative point, but when I've been rereading Marx, they're not entirely wrong that Marx is concerned about this kind of problem, all right? Because Marx is really worried about the proletariat becoming solely dependent on uh, not the state for production. They don't really have a problem with that. Like that's why sometimes they'll call for nationalization of industries, although Engels and Marx both make a big deal that nationalization is not socialization, but that's a separate point. Mm -hmm. The reason why they call for that is they're afraid that if you, if you make the state the supplier of the consumer, like by just increasing liquidity and supplier of consumer demand, that they will be also decreasing people from working and making them more dependent on the state. Now, from the authoritarian point of view, that's maybe not a bad thing. Um, and this is not me saying, oh, like China is, com is communist or China isn't. And I mean, I don't think it is, but, and they don't either, by the way, they don't claim mm -hmm. to be, uh, they claim to be headed in that direction. But uh, this means if they, if they make their, you know, the, if they generate internal demand by this, that they realize that they will, quote, make the proletariat lazy, um, which does sound conservative, but they're also worried about making the proletariat total dependence, all right, which is consistent with Marx. And this is the kind of thing Horkheimer is worried about. And actually, he he's not just worried about it. He thinks that in our culture that and in and in the USSR, um, this is already a done deal. We've already lost this battle by by 1947 right, right? that but the industrial industrial capital with state involvement has taken this out so now you have competition within the government and the public sector you have competition on the market you have competition within the firm itself you then have competition between nations but the fact that competitions between nations actually can exacerbate and make worse uh, competition between international corporations who are tied or maybe slightly grounded in one nation or another, but are not subject to them and in some ways are beyond their national limits. So all this becomes an interweaving set of of checks of which there's little way out to see. And mm -hmm. that's what, uh, to turn this back to reason, that is what Horkheimer seems to be thinking is ending any kind of rationality other than the immediate rationality, the instrumental rationality, mm -hmm. which he thinks is given to just turning into pure irrationality in any moment. Um, right. No. Yeah, I think that's right. So um, just to uh, underline and circle a point you, you just uh, made about consumerism, the trouble is not that if the workers' guts are filled with food, that they'll become lazy, or that if they have uh, too much leisure time, they won't show up to work. Um, 
you know, they'll demand more or 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 anything like that. But the difficulty, according to Marx, you were saying was that when uh, workers are reliant on, let's say, the welfare state to receive uh, monies and and the the packet of commodities they need to reproduce themselves um, without having worked, <clears throat> and that what that means is when a good portion of the working class is living off the surplus of another portion of the working class um, or off of bets on future production, I guess. Yeah, uh, one. then, yeah, uh, um, then what it happens is that the autonomy of the workers is reduced um, because, you know, they're no longer in a position, they've lost their, their, their power as workers in that move they no longer are relied upon to produce the value that society needs to to function they're no longer brought together in the workplace uh to organize and it also um, makes them it also makes one portion of the workers resenter of another portion of the workers because the people who are doing the work and generating the surplus power of course are going to hate the fuck out of the people who aren't this is why like yeah and that you can see that i mean that's just absolutely present in the working class in america and has absolutely. been for for you know generations i think at this point. i mean it, um, i mean it was how you controlled the working class in the south when you also racialized that but i mean in general it's it is a way you know and, and people who are slightly more secure in the working class spectrum if you want to call them pmc go ahead i don't believe in that and i don't think you do either but i think maybe that they i have... believe in it when i'm out in the world and oh, right. I, I, I definitely believe in it but in theoretically i don't but emotionally Yes, very much a salve for me to believe in the PMC. I, I have come on. to I have come to terms with the fact that like a lot of PMC theory, when they try to actually work it out in uh, in Marxist terms, ends up being vaguely anti-Marxist. But I do think we have to acknowledge the sociological reality of what's kind of being described there. And yeah. um, it's I think this I do have to turn back to the uh, Marx for. But when Marx talks about the four kinds of alienation, which he doesn't like name alienation type one alienation type two alienation type three but that competition creates alienation from the worker to the worker which is a problem for the class to move from in itself to for itself because alienation from the worker to the worker particularly if it's between groups of workers and not just individuals uh is a is a block to class solidarity and that means it's harder for them to actually act in concert to do anything it impedes their freedom to politically organize. Right. Is the way I would want to put it. I mean, solidarity is very important, but I think often enough when people hear about think about solidarity, now they think about a kind of collectivization that uh because we're so far down this road, that just uh feels like conformity, conformity. Like, you know, that, that solidarity is conforming to some sort of uh power from above to you know that's making demands upon you it's not it ends up being just solidarity with the state and in, in in action but but i am for solidarity but the point is that it impedes individual and collective freedom when this is going on um and and it has been going on for a long time um, you might notice that i have this sort of like i <laughs> um uh i i i have grown um bristly around left discourse in the last year like i i feel as though 
I, I that I can't afford to take my comrades at face value, like when they say something <laughs> like solidarity. Well, I mean that that's the problem with any form of these discourses, right? Is is discourse abstraction means that you can until the abstraction turns back into something real and the kind of Marxist, you know, thingification mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. That abstraction, it, it, it hides as much as it clarifies. So a, a solidarity clarifies the fact that like individuals have individual interest to act collectively um, in certain scenarios and under certain conditions. And I think that part of the equation, the acting collectively in certain scenarios under certain conditions, and this building an actual community and, and what that means can easily be sub subverted because there's all kinds of associations with every step of that where the collective just subsumes the individual, um, mm -hmm. which is something that Horkheimer is definitely concerned with, for example, where um, the collective good can be used for any number of individual betrayals to bring us to something that we're going to probably pivot to in a little while. That's what Freddie DeBoer's, you know, world of cops mm. is about. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think what we see in this, you know, I'm going to bring up two things that you didn't read. So I, I forgive you for, for not knowing what was on my mind. Uh, but mm -hmm. as I was reading this, I was thinking about Kristen Parenti's recent thing uh, over at Compact Magazine. Um, you, you know, Compact's a bugaboo for me, but I, I, I want to. I, 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 I may have read that um, piece because I subscribe to Compact as someone who's written for it. I feel like it's a good idea <laughs> for me to subscribe to it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Naomi Klein's Distorting Mirror. No, no, his his take on Peter Turchin. Peter Turchin's been been predicting that like the divisions within the PMC, the generational and and splitting divisions, have led oh, to yeah. this uh, fight. Now we'll get to so this. This was a while here. back. This is this is not a yeah. more, more recent one. Okay, this is about. Two I, I haven't read. Okay, I haven't read that one. Um. So Parenti's point was that Turchin's apocalypse isn't coming because. First of all, what's been happening to the PMC is that they've been actually proletarianized. Now, he doesn't take this to mean actually a good thing, which it normally would be, and what Barbara Ehrenreich thought it would be. So what his what his thing about the PMC was like, look, most of them are workers now. They're wage earners, and they've lost status by moving from like professional white-collar petty bourgeoisie when lawyers and doctors and stuff were independent operators to being very well paid employees of either the state or large corporations. Um, but they have lost status with that. All right. And the, uh, you know, and they're fighting another petite bourgeoisie, uh, which is like the, 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 what we think of as small proprietors, like contractors and, you know, stuff like that. Um, who uh, are, who are also struggling, but, are not dependent on the state and every little bit they lose to taxation is a real pain for them, which increases reactionary responses in both sides, but how the reaction manifests is different. So what, what Parenti says, the reason why you're not seeing this great fight between the quote elites um, are, you know, the quote PMC is because state patronage is intervening 
selectively to offset it, which is also why the kind of socialism you see developing out of that has moved from an admittedly totally incoherent anarchism of like your left, Doug, and mm, my the 90s. left. Yeah, the 90s mm. left. Um, through the aughts, you know, anti-Iraq war into Occupy and then liquidated into this like social democratic left, which increasingly isn't even social democratic, just like social democracy in Europe became increasingly not social democratic. Yeah, right. It's just a, an, an attempt to return to the welfare state and, and Fordism. Yeah, and it's an administrative state, Fordism, on a scale yeah. that is unimaginable. So much so that there's now renewed stakes in denying that there's ever going to be a profitability crisis. And that's coming from the left. Now, why would they do that? And how does this tie into what Horkheimer's just Well, because they're all MMTers is kind of my well, guess. Like they want to, they want the administrative state to be able to overcome the contradictions in capitalism. And they're basically become apologists for the state capitalism of the moment and pushing on the door of, of uh, post-neoliberalism as a scramble to get positions of authority within it. <laughs> it yeah. And you know what? Let's let's talk about Compact for a minute because I, I've met Sower Abamari. I, I, I ran an event that he was a part of where he talked to Chris Catrone. Mm -hmm. um, I was at the event with uh, Bhaskar Sankara and Sora Bamari uh, in New York a little while mm -hmm. ago. Um, and this is the, uh, you know, I'm going to say something that might make people upset. Um, not only is Compact the natural conclusion of the Bernie Sanders campaign and the DSA churn, and maybe maybe not the DSA churn because it may have, entryism might be working, but, um, but uh, of the, so-called social democratic turn. Mm -hmm. um, but it's actually uh, going to be for a moment, not very long, mind you, not very long at all, but for a moment, the better left than the left that actually it calls itself that. Um, well, I, I think they're both better at British. I mean, like, look, if I'm going to pick the... Um... But it's conservative. I mean, it's absolutely right. both. It's not only socially conservative, it is politically through and through conservative in the same way that the New Deal was, only more so. More so. I mean, yeah, it's like directly. So Reb Amari says what Bashkar won't, which is I'm looking for a government which can create class collaboration and, and a kind right. of a, uh, you know, a social harmony to keep this system going in a, in a way that because I don't believe there's anything beyond what exists now. We right. Right. I mean, actually, so Rob and I talked about this on This is Revolution and I and my, my response to Soab and Soab, uh, I will actually give Soab credit for this um, uh, is when my co-host, bless him, tried to soften what I was saying. Soab actually insisted on the harder interpretation of what I was saying and pointed out that from my standpoint, I should say that, that. I don't think class collaborationism is possible in the long run, that the contradictions of trying to do it will put these classes at odds. There is no way to, you can offset it. Like you can, you can decrease competition between the social classes. Right. But like one mm -hmm. social class, like 
There's no world in which the bourgeoisie does not live off of us, right? Making us well, you, long or you, better. Right, the capitalist class. The bourgeoisie right. may have disappeared, but the, the, well, yeah, the, 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 the capitalists. The, 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 I can hear the... Uh, I can hear the plot in you these days, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I actually will, I will grant that I'm uh, that, that theoretical historiographic framework is one that I go back and forth on, but mm -hmm. the bourgeoisie's children. All right. No matter how okay. you look at it, whether they're bourgeois or not, um, is this state capitalist developmental bureaucracy mm -hmm. and, um, we have been obscured by the fact, actively obscured by the fact, just like the new left, and this I will give Spencer Leonard credit for saying because he articulated it better than me and it made me understand what I've been trying to say for five years. Mm -hmm. Just like the new left fought Fordism only to freak out when it went away and then try to immediately bring it back, thus losing mm -hmm. their ability to do anything and thus eventually becoming narcissist or you know, neoliberals later, depending on how how concessionary they became. But they were really like, this is what we're fighting. Oh, no, it's going away. Shit. Um, mm. Similarly, um, we have been laboring under delusion that neoliberalism was like this return to entrepreneurial capitalism. It has mm. never been that. I've insisted on that for like over a decade right. now. Was it been that long? I remember when you really, really came down. You had some interviews um, back when the podcast was on the old Zero Books channel, but it was mm -hmm. called, what was the name of that? Symptomatic Redness, uh, and I was interviewing Philip Murawski and people around. Yeah, him. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like revelatory for me as well when you did that. Uh, because, yeah, because I was like, all of a sudden I just saw, oh, this is why it isn't that. These people are seeking state-created markets and state patronage to maintain a marketized society. It is Fordism, but we just kick labor out. Like, right. it's actually, it is an extension of the Fordist world, which is why I say now, uh, this is why I also have to give Chris Catron a little bit of credit when he's like, we're in post-neoliberalism, but we don't really know what that means. That's because, like, we've seen something about neoliberalism change. Right. But mm -hmm. the hour of Minerva always flies late. And so we don't know what that is until it fully instantiates. Right now, it's all over the place what that means. Does it mean a new nationalism? Does it mean does it mean general collapse? Does it mean neo-feudalism? Um, yeah, I don't I think neo-feudalism is the wrong way to think about it. Me too. Uh, but yeah, but but I do think it it means um, the forms of freedom that we started to take for granted under neoliberalism are definitely under threat. And um, it means that the the state is going to be even more oppressive and present and weaker than it has been in the past at the same time. And yeah. um, well, the omnipresent and, state being obvious that it's omnipresent is actually a sign of its weakness, which I don't think right. people quite understand. So like, right. Um, I, right. Although it is also hard to imagine, and it is still like you and I've been talking about this for 10 years too, um, that the classical insurrectionary understanding of revolution as it existed in the 19th and very early 20th century is possible in the same way. Both things seem weirdly foreclosed. The state's not as powerful, and yet there doesn't seem to be any way to overthrow it in the way that people have thought about in the past. And I know that, you know, people are going to go up in arms about that, but you still haven't convinced me that you understand what it means to take on 
not just a nuclear arms state, but a nuclear arms state with drones that don't even need to really risk the lives of soldiers to get at you. And, and that's something that, you know, which leads to a lot of people to become collapses or crises or whatever, because it seems like that is the way out. Um, what I think is interesting is somebody who is influential, uh, influenced by the Frankfurt School, but ends up not being a part of them is this sociologist who's kind of been forgotten called uh, Alvin W. Guldner. I haven't um, heard of him. And he wrote this book that I think should be really more well-read called The Two Marxisms. And he's actually got it in the kind of dialectic with each other that there's like, um, he calls it structural Marxism and critical Marxism. Now, I think these are ideal typologies that has its own problem, and I don't entirely buy but this framework is actually interesting. Because what he talks about is there's a focus on the will and there's a focus on the forces, and these are both completely legitimate in Marx, that you can find Marx is talking about this, and we all have to do it. And depending on where we are in a cycle, we're going to often, the same individual will alternate between these poles. So you can't just say like, Althusser is a structural Marxist and Lukash is a critical Marxist, even though in both cases, it seems like for the most part they are, but there's points in both their lives where they switch over, right? What I find interesting about that is put that in the context of this. Why is that happening? Because we are trying to deal with this, with the seeming impasse of two things, I think. One is we've seen a decimation of what individuality means, all right? And I think we see it in kids. Like, what is individuation for kids today? TikTok stuff? Like, in some ways, consumer choices have become so private that there's no social element in them, like the death of the music industry and stuff like that. Like, mm -hmm. in other ways, they're so curated and controlled by algorithm, and even the music's made by algorithm and presented to you even in like TikTok versions as like accompanying music with young people that, that there's not like, even though you're consuming them asocially individually, that they're produced for a mass society in a way that like Horkheimer and Adorno couldn't have imagined because, but it, it is a, it is actually an extension of the tendencies they saw and Fordism taken to the extreme. And what does that mean for the individual? Well, that means individually we're psychically decimated, all right? And thus we need to even like, you know, I think the most recent thing, and I, I don't say this as an anti-psychiatrist, I'm not, uh, you know, I think, I think a lot of these conditions are real, but these psychological conditions as identity categories, as identifying with your psychological condition as an explanation is a way to take the last vestige of you, which is your own psychic damage, and make mm -hmm. it into who you are. All right. right. Um, okay. At, at that very same time, collectivity also seems impossible. So even though you are being collectively defined and you're being collectively engaged with the idea of collective action, meaning anything, even though, even in the case of like, let's turn this and talk about something meaningful to us right now. Uh, the hashtag movements have faded away and now we have labor activism again, but the labor union movement, even though it's richer than it's ever been, and there's more real labor militancy than there's been in a long time, the rebirth of the labor unions, if there was one was actually in 2013 statistically speaking that's the last mm -hmm. 
high point of uptick as a percentage of the population in unions, which means that there's a total misrecognition of, of the collective action and the collective will. They cannot mesh. So no wait, tell me about the split between the collective action and the collective will. Right. There's a you, lot of militancy right now. That's the will. But the okay. organizations to take corrective action are not in a place to do it. And people aren't joining them because part of them knows that. Even though unions are not unpopular anymore, mm-hmm. a lot of people do seem to know that their union cannot do what the union that would theoretically organize them cannot do what it used to do. And this puts them in a bind. And I don't think, you know, this is the Hotel Grand Abyss stuff, right? And and this can flip on its head. Like one of the things about Hotel Grand Abyss, it can also become hotel actionism at any moment because this Mm. pessimism can lead to like just an inversion. And this Mm. is the kind of movements that Horkheimer is afraid of and why he thinks all this stuff like instrumental rationality from our standpoint today seems hyper-rational. Like, not only am I rational, I'm rational on the immediate level. Like, Mm -hmm. I make immediate decisions based off of rational calculuses. And his point in Dialectic of Enlightenment, which I do think you need to read to, like, fully grok the Eclipse of Reason. uh, Well, I should say their point, because Adorno is here, too. I've I've read Dialectic of Enlightenment. I I think I've read it with you, right? Right. But, But people should read it, yeah. But it'll flip. Like, like this instrumental rationality can easily afflict to pure emotivism. Alester McIntyre, the kind of post-Marxist conservative philosopher, I say post-Marxist because not because he's like a post-Marxist like Baudrillard, is literally he was a Marxist and became a Catholic. And like seems to be at the very end of his life in his almost 100 years, becoming slightly more amenable to Marxism again. But um, one of the things that you see in him in his discussion of this is this focus on rationality. And he's not pulling from Horkheimer and Adorno here. He's actually pulling from like pure Aristotle um, and and Thomas Aquinas. But this Mm -hmm. focus on rationality inverts itself into pure motivism, all right? Because your instrumental reason is instrumental towards a good. Well, if you have no long-term vision to what the good is, that's just whatever Mm -hmm. you feel at a given moment. And this is to tie this finally to kind of bridge into where I know you want to go. Cause I know you want to talk about Freddie DeVore's uh, world. Okay, of cops. Planet of cops. We'll do that in the second half. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just to give people a teaser. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why this is so effective for creating narcs, a whole society of narcs is because we feel like our immediate political needs are all encompassing. Even though if you actually put them in a grand spectrum, they are very tiny and immediate, which means that every battle is the greatest political battle you've ever had in a generation. All the stakes are always high. Hate can overrun us all. Who controls Twitter is going to destroy uh, democracy, et cetera, mm. et cetera, et cetera. We've seen this amping up. Our, my, For my life, this has been a tendency the entire time. From what I can tell historically, the shift to this way of thinking. All right. I get this from a, from a liberal thinker named Michael Sandel, but I do think his way of describing it's actually very good. From the civic republicanism of the 19th century, with all its limitations and its dependency on, on like petty bourgeois and artisan society, into the administrative state of mass capitalism of most of the 20th century, mm-hmm. into the crisis of the administrative state now. 
where everything is constantly in crisis because they can't deliver on anything, even though we materially can. But the ability to reconcile all these contradictions we are pointing out becomes more and more impossible. And so what do we turn to? Well, the only way we can justify that is fear. You can use fear to get people to narc on people. And if fear is your primary operational condition, and I think for most of my life since the 70s, mm -hmm. fear has been the way that we have appealed to, to uh, the non-consensus, the move towards totally negative partisanship. And what drives negative partisanship? Fear. Why did we bring to the you know why did we bring the war on terror home? And I don't know that liberals and leftists have been honest that that's part of they've been a key figure in doing that. Yeah, fear, and some of the fear is legitimate, mm -hmm. and some of it's not. But we only get that, which means like it's hard to even remember. Um, uh, so Rob made this point recently on Twitter. Sir, but I want to say, look, I want to inter I want to interrupt uh, person because I want to say, in my lifetime there was a politics of the left that was not exclusively focused on um, fear or acting out of fear. Uh, you, When I opposed the invasion of Afghanistan, mm -hmm. I could have, I did it on maybe on one basis because I didn't think that it was a very effective policy in terms of uh, forestalling and, and, or at least slowing down future terrorist attacks and that it was actually not in the interest of the United States public to transform what was a criminal act into a, a global war. And I was afraid of the consequences, but there was also a uh, politics based on the goal of um, human decency, of cooperation, of striding towards uh, a, a more equitable social world, um, caring about other people i mean you know i'm not trying to be um sentimental here i'm uh, because i'm because i'm just trying to characterize accurately the way i was thinking in in the year 2000 right you know or 2000 i i mean what i'm gonna what i'm gonna say is i think i lived through the shift of that very politics moving from principles into paranoia Mm -hmm. um, I did were, too. Yeah, and there were good reasons for it to be paranoid. This is what I this is what I want to tell people. I'm not saying that all of this fear is unfounded. What I am saying is, if it, what in a society where um the individualism is seemingly moved by forces that it cannot possibly contain, right? And you don't feel like there's really any immediate agency to be had. Or if there is agency, it's like in grand productive forces and geopolitics beyond the scale of even a, an organized political movement in one country. Um, the most natural reaction does tend to be over time to give in to defending what little bit you have left. And I think that is what Horkheimer was afraid of with the old left. And I mean here the properly old left, not the new left. I think mm -hmm. that is what we saw happen over the 1970s with the new left for reasons that were partly its own ideas, but also partly the shifting economic and geopolitical context that was happening and which you and I were born into where the Soviet Union has fallen apart and it's hard to tell what China is. And... Um, 
it seems like, you know, there's global U.S. hegemony, but we're at constant war despite that, et cetera, and so forth. Like, what seemed to happen since then, all right, uh, uh, and we can talk about this in the in the Freddie DeBoer piece a little bit, but is that we've always known, like, just so people know, council culture, in so much that it is a thing, and I do believe it is, but it actually is initially a right-wing Protestant move. It has mm-hmm. spread to general society. Now, this is not to say it is always that. I mean, you could. I mean, I know the the obvious comparison, like the Cultural Revolution, is is council culture. You know, and I mock that. But there is an element to that impulse, even in the Cultural Revolution, um, mm-hmm. because I, I I don't think that impulse is an impulse that is that is like economically rationally right or left. I think that impulse is more of a, I do think we could probably call it right wing, but, but it's why when I talk about like entire not necessarily conservative, right, but it might not, be, it's, yeah. it's authoritarian. It's authoritarian. Right. And, and the reason why is you just want to save what you have. And it also forecloses the idea of a positive future. Right. Right. Well, right. What you're trying to save what you have for right now, you're yeah. not even trying to, preserve what you have you know you're just trying to save it or have it you're trying to have it um i want to say one thing about like um my own thinking before we go into the this will be what i want to try to talk about in the parrot room but um uh i have felt as though uh i felt pushed to say basic things over and over again in a, in a way that might seem flat footed to a lot of, uh, you know, not kind of almost simple minded. And I do that. I've always done that really. But um, cause I'm, you know, I'm not the, uh, the brightest bulb in the room. I, I have been, I'm okay. But the point is like, I, I've done it intentionally because um, I felt that there has been a, we've been losing sight of, um, uh, of the, what it would take to be able to develop a, a, a future oriented politics. And, um, but the, I've also noticed that, and, and, and it's been, you know, uh, pointed out to me, Gene pointed out to me um, that the way I'm talking can easily become the, the kind of move that the RCP took after 1989. Right, that it can become this. Okay, well, since we only have, we don't have a proletarian revolution, we don't have a politics, a left politics. Our task as socialists is merely to hold on to the best aspects of bourgeois society. Right. We, we, we can just try to protect civil liberties from the administrative state, um, and if that means we're going to sound like uh, American libertarians, so be it. They're more. They're actually ahead of. What calls itself the left right now anyway is is but they don't stay punk. there that's the thing like if you look at where spiked has gone it's not that there aren't libertarians in the spiked world and that's the result of the rpc rcp uk guys just so you know not the rcp yeah. united states right that's right rcp uk the people um, i've i i don't deal with on a regular basis but have dealt with in the past and right um, um and and that uh ashley has kind of been a was a part of or was educated by and, and no. um uh what i would say to that is that well it's not a move i want to make is my the final point it's like i right. don't even want to go there 
right? I want to say, no, this, all this, let's, let's protect ourselves from the state can be seen as a necessary step towards rebuilding a socialist movement, not, and, and that the proletariat, you know, the, if we're going to, if they're going to be the subject of history, have to be given the, after demand, not be given, they have to demand the freedom to organize politically in these kinds of or basic bourgeois rights that um, we can't take for granted, but that we should not accept going away. Um, and, and, but so that, but, you know, uh, but it, it, when I have, when the rest of the left or not the rest of the left, but when a good portion of the left, like 90% of the left just does not see uh, that as a primary difficulty, it, it, it the react, you know, uh, it can. I, I think I can be seen as like retreating into this RCP right. bourgeois culture is the best thing we've got. Well, I, my my response to to that um, is is uh, um, I'm glad you're clarifying that. I sometimes worry about that for you as well, but uh, it's not going. But I've seen everybody retreat in some way. I mean, like we've seen all these Bernie Sanders or it's become more radical by becoming more and more incoherent Marxist-Leninists. And when I say incoherent Marxist-Leninists, they're like Jay Sakai on one day and then like Midwestern Marx, light Browderism, you know, light patriotic socialism, not the, not like, not the hard MAGA communist stuff, but you know, the next. And these are the same people with with like, it, it they haven't even changed since they left Bernie, their ideological framework, yet they now believe alter, completely opposite things about the nature of left nationalism all right and so why is that why are you seeing that and the question that i would ask all leftists who want to be serious right is not just to go that something is happening all right mm. that's we can all see shit's happening um mm. it's ask them why do you think in the context of our society as a totality not just in the united states either um, this is happening. What's the why for it? Because the, the last thing I want to say is I, the one thing I will say that I find Horkheimer to say in this essay, I find Adorno to say it in resignation, well, this chapter of the book, I find Adorno to say it in resignation is the reason why they start focusing down on individual subjectivity is because we can predict aggregates we can. We can predict how the masses of people are probably likely to respond. Just like, but we cannot predict individuals. It's the same reason why your class position does not necessarily dictate where you're going to sign in the class struggle. Like you can be a class trader mm -hmm. in either direction because mm -hmm. there is still variability in the individual. But there's no there's no power there. There's just the ability to think and to survive. Into mm -hmm. hopefully, and I, I, I think this is implied in the pessimism, but this is the kind of debate between Lukash and late Frankfurt School. Um, and people who want to say that the Frankfurt School gave up, got sold out to the, you know, to the Co Congress of Cultural Freedom, etc. Um, make of that what you will. If that happened, and I'm not sure I think it did, but if that did happen, this would be why is that. What do you do when you're saying, okay, the best we're going to have is individual resistance? Because that's where Horkheimer and Adorno end up. And I think, well, the best we can have as the beginning is individual realization. 
like because the individual can still think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't. And think look, I I want that. something better than that. I want my right. milieu to think. I feel like I have. I'm I, I'm adjacent to or was in, and still am in a a, a left milieu that that grew during the Sanders campaigns, especially from during the Trump years. And I want that milieu to think. Um, I want the the people who are um, in, uh, you know, in the digital media, independent media to think um, and not simply to follow along uh, with, with what seems like in the immediate uh, moment, the, the thing to do and often it seems it, it it's a repetition but it what is uh, we also fail to notice is that it the repetitions are are different um like this russell brand cancellation oh God. has a different character than previous versions of cancellations i mean putting aside whether or not russell brand is guilty i i don't know but just the 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 way in which it, it used to be that you would cancel someone and it, and that would be, uh, first of all, thought of as coming from civil society. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, and those who would argue that it was a kind of censorship um, had to retreat into a cultural argument. They no longer do. And I do think in fact, the reason why it seems like it's not simply uh, a cultural battle is because it isn't. It's being it is taking place in the in the context of um, a, a, a war, uh, and and so we have to notice that the the character of something like cancel culture has changed, as even as it's it makes us uncomfortable culturally and also it's not in our immediate interest to do to notice that that change. right i mean and it, it even something like brand puts you in a hard situation because let's just assume and i'm not assuming this as a fact i'm just saying let's just assume he is guilty we still right. have to say that like that needs to be handled through formal legal processes oh obviously i mean clearly that and I, what i would say is that a, a socialist left my argument about this, and we'll, uh, we'll look, let's take it into let's the parent room. Let's take it to the parent room. But yeah, I mean, like, I, I, this is me being, I'm just going to start sounding like, you know, old-fashioned liberal, just, and, and uh, you know, which I'm more and more comfortable doing. But we'll, we'll talk about this in the parent room. We're not going to talk too much about um, uh, uh, Russell Brand because there'll be plenty of opportunities to talk about this oh, one God. guy um, in in the future. But um, we'll, we'll try to talk about... Uh, and the on the tenth anniversary of Vampire Castle, no less, too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, we'll see you in the parrot room. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.